This evening I would like to speak about the path of compassion. Mother Teresa Nan in India once said that we are not asked to do great things in our lives but that we are asked to do small things with great love. And it seems to me that this very simple and yet profound statement is a real reminder of the heart of meditation practice. And one thing, fundamental quality, we need to learn about and explore in our practice is the power of compassion and the power of love. The Buddha was once asked by Ananda, was asked, would it be true to say that a part of our practice was for the development of love and compassion? And the Buddha said, no, it would not be true to say this. It would be true to say that the whole of our practice is for the development of love and compassion. I think it is very easy to make meditation into something extraordinarily complicated. I think it is also very important to remember that the complications that we struggle with in meditation are actually our own complexities that may have very little to do with what this practice is about. We can become lost in the complexities of meditation when we create agendas we can find ourselves becoming excessively concerned with the quality of our concentration or the depth of our mindfulness we can find ourselves becoming entangled and imprisoned in ideas of progress or improvement or with signposts that show to us that we are getting somewhere. We can become very involved in using the practice as a means of resolving issues or finding answers. We forget in all of this complexity that the heart of this practice, the heart of the meditative path, is one that is simply dedicated to the end of suffering on a moment-to-moment level, one that is simply dedicated to being awake on a moment-to-moment level. And very often, the bridge that there is between suffering and wakefulness is actually compassion. We may be tempted to think of compassion in terms of great deeds or grand sacrifices or having a particular kind of feeling. We may be tempted to think of compassion in terms of very dramatic gestures or renunciations. And then of course when we rather uh, limit compassion with these ideas, it does seem very often to us that we must also leave compassion to the saints and to the Buddha. Or we think that compassion will be a state that we will arrive at probably much later in our journey 
after we have resolved our particular issues or got enough concentration or found enough answers, or that we will arrive at compassion later in our journey after we have purified ourselves and made ourselves more perfect. I think it is very, very truthful to say that we don't have to be particularly perfect to be compassionate. We don't have to strive for saintliness even to be a particular kind of person in order to be compassionate. Actually, the only credential or the only prerequisite we need to be compassionate is to be present, to be awake. We don't need to make a grand gesture or grand renunciation in order to be compassionate. Compassion is often found within the most simple words, the most simple gestures, the most clear relationship that it is possible for us to form with this moment. We don't necessarily need to have a lot of wise credentials or a lot of grand experiences in order to be compassionate. What we do need, more simply, is to know how to listen well. To know how to listen well. Compassion certainly is not born of having discovered a lot of very skillful prescriptions and formulas for living. Compassion is found much more in the simplicity of being able to attend to each moment in our lives without prejudice. I think sometimes compassion feels difficult for us because we think of it, we should feel a particular way, we should have a particular kind of feeling, and then we're going to be compassionate. And this often feels so impossible for us, because we see we also have many feelings that don't feel particularly compassionate or caring. We often feel that we have so many feelings of anger or resentment or jealousy or greed, and that because of the weight of these feelings or because of our judgments about these feelings that it's not possible for us to have this other kind of feeling of compassion. Personally, I never would think of compassion in terms of a particular mental state or a particular feeling. This seems to me to be too transient, too superficial a description or understanding of compassion. I would also never personally think of compassion in terms of, you know, it's a feeling that arises in certain moments. Never think of compassion in terms of a feeling that arises when we happen to be confronted with particular instances or circumstances or situations of suffering or pain. This too, I think, is a very limited way of understanding compassion. And perhaps it is more, more true, or perhaps wiser to question, whether compassion is not something deeper than a transient feeling, or a transient mind state that will arise in some moments and not in others. But perhaps to begin to think of compassion as a relationship 
with life, with all of life, which includes ourselves. Perhaps to think of compassion as a way of being present, a quality of presence that we bring to our world, that we bring to our lives, that we bring to ourselves without making distinction. One of the greatest manifestations of the Buddha is found in the deity of Kuan Yin, um, a Chinese uh, deity. Some of you may have encountered and Kuan Yin is depicted as a Buddha who sits with her eyes open and her hands outstretched. And Kuan Yin translated into English means one who listens to the sounds of the universe. For me this points much more to the path of compassion of one who listens to the sounds of the universe. And my feeling is that to listen well is actually to be able to let go of a great deal of, of baggage and expectations about how we should feel or how we should respond. Simply to be able to listen wholeheartedly means not being particularly concerned with fixing anything at all means not being particularly concerned or having an agenda of rearranging our world or ourselves or other people in any way to fit in with our ideas of what is right. Being able to listen well, I feel, doesn't mean having to struggle to find the right words or the right actions. It's listening well that's certainly not concerned with placing blame. Listening well is concerned simply with being present. This capacity to listen is a remarkable gift. It seems to me that the capacity to listen is actually the mother of all wisdom. It allows us to come to a place of receptivity, attentiveness, sensitivity within ourselves in which the whole world of movement is received. So feel that in this place of receptivity, of stillness, of presence, all that is needed in terms of response arises by itself, not according to our own ideas of how things should be. But the wisdom actually arises from a deep well of receptivity. To listen well to each moment actually is a revelation. It re to listen well is the means of discovering the truth of each moment. To listen well to each moment is actually revealing to us the illusoriness of separation. This is the major teaching of listening. When we listen well, we begin to understand that all beings are interconnected on so many different levels, that life is a tapestry of many interwoven threads. 
All beings are interconnected, both on relative and on very ultimate level. We are interconnected in our reliance and our dependency upon each other. For us to partake of a single meal here requires countless efforts from countless beings from the world around us, from all of life, all for us to be able to eat a single meal. We are interconnected in our capacity to feel all of life has the capacity to feel both joy and pain, happiness and fear. There is no life, no living being, who is exempt from pain. There is no living being who is exempt from the pains of sickness, of loss, of separation, of grief, of terror. These are threads of pain that run through all of life and all of experience. All life, then, is in need of compassion. It is so often compassion that heals and restores us. It's that quality, that experience of being listened to, of being received, that offers to us a sanctuary from pain. There are many ways in which we are interconnected with life. We are interconnected with all of human life in our capacity to nurture wakefulness, to nurture receptivity, to nurture sensitivity, to learn the lessons of how to live well in a sacred way, in a noble way, in a way of dignity. We are also connected with all of life, with all human life, and are also in our capacity for delusion. We all have the capacity equally in our lives to foster separation and division and alienation, to engage in struggle and conflict. Sometimes we discover that we are connected with all human life and our capacity to believe in the delusion of separation, which is the forerunner, the parent of so much suffering, the parent of greed and anger, the belief in separation, believing in the delusion of separation. It's the parent of hatred, of prejudice and violence. To see ourselves, to believe ourselves to be separate from other selves, is to live in a world of opponents and allies, is to live in a way in which we feel to be surrounded by potential threat or projected safety. This is the world of struggle. This is what the world of struggle is all about, to believe ourselves to live in a world of opponents and allies. The most essential suffering which we can share with so much life it's the delusion, being lost in the delusion in which we are exiled from all that is most true within ourselves and with all beings. All beings, all human life, is equally interconnected and shares in the capacity to be profoundly awake 
to be profoundly and deeply aware. We share with all human beings that capacity to awaken to that which is most true within ourselves, that which is with most true within all moments. So the meditation is actually so extraordinarily simple. It is about listening, listening. No conditions, no demands, no prejudices, no preferences, no choices. Just simply to listen in the most deeply awake way we can. I feel it is always, always, always the right time to put aside our ideas of progress and regression to put aside our ideas of what kind of states we should experience, the kind of person we should be, to put aside our ideas of attainment and non-attainment, and certainly to put aside our ideas of good and bad meditations, of high and low experiences. There is in truth no such thing as a good meditation. There is, in truth, no such thing as a bad meditation. There is, in truth, no such thing as an experience that is worth pursuing or an experience that is worth rejecting. All of these ideas and dichotomies that we make really have very little to do with meditation and they certainly have very little to do with compassion. Then why do we have so many? of these ideas? Why do we entertain so many of these ideas and struggle with them? Because even as I say, there's no such thing as a good meditation or a bad meditation. I know very well that most people actually secretly believe that there is. You know, and really know the difference between a good meditation and a bad meditation a worthwhile experience and a non-worthwhile experience and struggle with those ideas a great deal. So where do they come from, these ideas? If they're not actually promoted, and they're not promoted here at least, I don't think you have heard anyone here present to you a picture of a good meditation. No, never. None of us would ever say, this is what a good meditation looks like and please try and have it. We would never say this. Or that this is what a bad meditation looks like and please try and get rid of it. Never. And yet these ideas can have such a strong hold. And where do they come from? Well, they have not much to do with meditation. But they do have a great deal to do with self-image. Isn't this true? When you have a bad meditation, or what you define as a bad meditation, do you leave that bad meditation or sit with it and think, oh, I'm doing so well here, you know, I'm such a terrific meditator. No. We think, oh, you know, I'm such a disaster. When you have one of these so-called really good meditations, do you just let it be and watch this unfolding phenomena with grace and equanimity and move on to the next moment? Or do you kind of perk up a little bit inwardly and say, aha, 
you know, finally, finally I'm getting there. Finally I'm getting the real thing. Finally I'm making some progress. They have much to do with self-image. And many of these ideas really have to do with what we want from meditation. Not anything to do with meditation at all, but what we would like to have or get from meditation. I think it is very important for us to see that as long as we are caught up in these ideas of good and bad, of self-image, of expectation and wanting, it's very difficult to listen well because we're so entangled. We're so caught up in the ideas it is difficult to listen well. Caught up in those ideas that we carry with us we are actually caught up essentially with a world that is to do with performance and appearance. And didn't we actually come here to leave that world behind? Because we were tired of that world? Of being judged endlessly about performance and appearance? Well, perhaps we really begin to leave that world behind when we also leave behind our own prejudices about our own experience. Many of those ideas are simply to do with our own notions of perfection and imperfection, but they do not have anything to do with listening well. And this is what we are asked to do in this practice, to learn how to listen well to the sounds of the universe in each moment. We can say a great deal about what meditation is, but I think it is perhaps simple enough to say that meditation is a relationship to every moment of acute, alert, of wholehearted listening, and that this relationship in itself is compassion. That is compassion. That wholehearted listening, without preference, without prejudice, is actually what compassion is. A way of being present without demands, without compassion, without conditions. Now we can understand then why meditation and why compassion is not all that easy for us, why it is so challenging because it is not easy for us to live without conditions. It's not easy for us to live without demand. You know, I think Lao Tzu once said, you know, this path is not difficult for those who have no preferences. It doesn't take us very long to discover on retreat how much our world is actually filled with preferences. You know, we can be very happy sitting here listening to the sounds of the birds, you know, feel so at one with the universe, you know, the birds are singing to us. Yet the milk truck comes and it's, oh no, you know, how can I listen with the milk truck here, you know, or the postman, you know, this is not what I want to listen to. We can be so happy listening, you know, even to the sheep or the cows, we think of the wonder of nature expressing itself. And yet our neighbor can be shuffling around beside us and we think, I wish they would stop so I could listen. 
and I wish I could stop so I could really listen to nature. We are willing to often to to listen to our inner world when there is calmness, when there is unfolding insight, and yet when the mind is chattering, when the mind is busy with its own struggles, we think, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could get over this, so I could really begin my meditation. We are willing to attend to those moments when we feel filled with loving kindness and sensitivity for our colleagues here and compatriots. We are not so willing to be present when someone takes the last of the sauce or the last of the pasta. We think, oh no, you know, this is not how it should be, what happened to all these wonderful people. I think it is important to see that every condition is a little bit of a renunciation of compassion. Every condition places a limitation upon our relationship to this moment. There's a story of a, of a nun who was once engaged in a kind of long-term practice dedicated to loving-kindness and compassion. and. The way she would do this practice is that she had an altar with a boot on it and, and every day before on her altar she would light incense and chant to her Buddha statue. And all was going well in the universe until she got a roommate who annoyed her terribly. And she decided, well, you know, this roommate is just so utterly aggravating that I refuse to share my practice or the merits of my practice of loving kindness with her. So she built a funnel to go around her incense and of course the smoke from the incense turns the nose and the face of her Buddha black. This is what happens when we place a limitation or when we make conditions. Now, many people speak or wait for or long to have breakthroughs in meditation. It seems to me the most profound breakthrough in meditation is actually breaking through our resistance to being with what is. Breaking through our resistance to being with what is, to be present without conditions. I think we begin to understand what meditation is and we begin to understand what compassion is. This is our challenge, to learn how to do small things with great love. Here we do very ordinary things. We breathe, we walk, we sit, we eat. We move through our world. How to make those movements, take those steps, and do those most ordinary and simple things with great love. This is what mindfulness is. This is what mindfulness is learning to bring that quality of care, that wholeheartedness, that sense of dedication to being present, willing to welcome all things without conditions. In mindfulness practice, which is a practice of love, a practice of compassion, it is very important that we restrain ourselves from our judgments about what is worthy of attention and what is not, about what is worthy of compassion and what is not worthy. To see and to live with the unprejudiced mind is to see that every moment is worthy of our most wholehearted presence. 
then we begin to understand how much compassion actually has to do with wisdom. Because to listen well, we are asked to be empty. <coughs> this is what it means to let go of our conditions, to be empty within ourselves. Every time we refrain just a little bit from our judgments, from our prejudices, and every time we refrain just a little bit from acting upon our judgments or from acting upon our prejudices with either aversion or pursuit, in that moment, actually, we renounce the world of conditions. We renounce the world of prejudice. We renounce the world of preferences. And in doing so also, in that there is a renunciation of the world of appearances, the world of delusion, and the world of ignorance. We are willing in that renunciation to look just a little deeper, to listen just a little bit more fully, to listen and to honor in that listening the possibility of suchness, the possibility of interconnectedness, the possibility of truth that lies beneath the world of appearances. Think about this in a concrete way. You know, if someone offends you here, if someone offends us in our lives, it is so easy to make a judgment. The next time we meet with that person, how freshly, how wholeheartedly do we see them? Often not very much so. Often what we see is our judgment about them. We see the world of appearance. We often act upon that. We want to distance ourselves from this offensive person. We want to move away from them. In doing so, this is acting out our own delusions. In learning how to pause, to listen again, to listen well, we are actually renouncing that whole cycle of separation. We open to the possibility of learning. We open to the possibility of seeing more deeply. We can do this also in relationship to ourselves. Learning how to stop and renew our connection. Learning how to receive the world, to listen to the world, and to listen to ourselves in a spirit of loving emptiness is one of the most profound gifts we can offer to the world, we can offer to another person, or we can offer to ourselves. In these moments of emptiness, these moments of listening so wholeheartedly, we actually begin to look, uh, understand, or to travel the path of the Bodhisattva. Because the path of the Bodhisattva is simply a wholehearted commitment to the end of suffering. A wholehearted commitment to being awake to all that which is most true. Sometimes it seems such a challenge to listen well. Sometimes it seems that it is easier to travel the pathways of distance, of alienation, of disconnection. And yet this is a world of suffering. Now we live in a world of immense suffering, immense pain. 
a world in which the gap between those who have and those who don't have continues to widen. A world in which hunger and fear and violence are shadows which darken the lives of countless people, countless beings. We live in a world where greed and heedlessness and the addiction to pleasure are the diseases of fear and which escalate the spiral of suffering. There is no life that is untouched by pain. But there are too many lives which carry the shadows of ceaseless pain. And we are all asked to respond to this world. We live in this world. We are all asked to respond to this world. And we can respond in such a variety of different ways. For a person who does not wish to listen or finds it difficult to listen well, encountering pain sometimes makes them fearful or angry. Sometimes we may have seen these feelings within ourselves when we meet with pain. And we encounter the face of pain every day in our lives. In the face of the homeless, in the face of loneliness, in the angry, we encounter the face of pain in so many of the images we receive through our media. Sometimes that pain seems very distant from us, and many times we would like it to remain distant. Because distance is a way of protecting ourselves, of preserving separation. And sometimes we do fear that if we were to listen to our world well, that we may actually be overwhelmed by pain or incapable of response. Sometimes we listen to pain and we become very angry and we shout at the world. And we are very busy in finding fault and figuring out who to blame. Sometimes anger can stir us in creative ways to seek for solutions. Yet it is so important to remember that in anger, we are married in a very essential way to all of those who perpetuate pain in the world. So I had a friend who lived at Greenham Common and in the peace camp there and one day there was a demonstration where there was a number of other people at the camp and the police were called and the police came in with, with actually a great deal of violence and aggression and one of the policemen uh, hit uh, a, a friend, this woman, with his truncheon. And when he did that, she said she, her first reaction was to reach down and pick up a stone and throw it in the face of the policeman. And she realized in doing that, when she did it, she realized actually that both she and the policeman were touching the world in essentially exactly the same way. That although their anger had different sources, both of them were wounding the world. Sometimes in the face of pain, we want to numb ourselves. I think when we travel this path in many ways, we have made a commitment to forsaking the avenues, forsaking the pathways of distancing ourselves from pain and make a commitment to learn how to listen well 
To learn how to listen well is to understand and is to see actually that compassion is a primary expression of understanding. That when we listen well, we see we live in a world surrounded by lives which are essentially ourselves in a different form. This does not mean that compassion has to be a very dramatic thing. We can be to be living in a spirit of loving emptiness does not have to take grand forms, does not have to result in particular actions. Many or some of you have been to India and I know when I went to India one of the places that I wanted to spend some time was at the home for the dying that that Mother Teresa and her nuns had created in Calcutta. And it's quite an extraordinary place, a place that is actually dedicated to caring for some of the poorest and the sickest and the most diseased people in India. And one of the nuns was once asked, well, you know, what do you feel when you do this, when you touch these people, when you look after these people? And she responded by saying that in touching this dying person or this diseased person, that she was actually looking into the face of God. Now, it seems to me that that way of being in the world is actually living with a remarkable spirit of loving emptiness. Because all of those living in that, in that place know that actually the dying will never stop, that even if someone recovers, they're going to come back to die another day, and that their lives will actually be filled with this endless stream of death. And I think there's also the knowing that it is not prescriptions or formulas or right ways of being that is needed, that none of these are actually healing. That in the face of pain, we are actually left with our simple capacity to honor life to honor dignity, to honor to that, that which is most essentially true within another person. In doing this, there is healing. Compassion asks us to welcome and greet each moment without demands, without conditions. It also asks us to demand no result of our way of being present in this moment. This is equally difficult. You know, we are so conditioned to believe that something is worthy, something is worthwhile, only if it produces a particular result. You know, we bring this into meditation, of course, all the time, this, this way of thinking, you know, well, unless I have a particular result, how do I know that my meditation is doing anything, you know? Isn't this the same? With compassion, we are asked to live in a way in which we demand no results of our way of being present, no proof. That there is no kind of outcome of our way of being present in the world. You know, we are so conditioned to believe that something's worthy only if it has an effect, if it makes a tangible difference. But in this way of seeing, perhaps it's, it's so obvious to us the ways in which our sense of self has become invested in our doing. I need, I want, I give, but I want to see something happen through it. 
to be able to listen without a purpose, to be able to sit without a purpose, to be able to walk in meditation without a purpose, it seems to me is a remarkable commitment. It's a remarkable dedication to openness. It seems to me it's a remarkable expression of trust to sit and to walk with no purpose. This, you know, this challenges our conditioning so deeply that it is enough just to be present. It's enough just to be awake. It's enough just to listen. To be able to sit even without the most well-intentioned purpose. You know, some people say, well, you know, I've got rid of those sort of nasty ideas about, you know, being a perfect saint or, you know, being holy, but I'd still like to be enlightened. To sit with no purpose at all. This is surely learning how to act in a spirit of loving emptiness. Learning how to be present in a spirit of loving emptiness. That commitment is remarkably powerful. It's, it makes you think, you know, like the, those women who work, those nuns who work in that home for the dying in, in Calcutta, they're not saints, particularly according to our idea of saints. They're young women who have their own demons, and yet they have that commitment to having no particular result except to be present in a spirit of loving emptiness. It seems to me that our lives are pathways that often involve going, exploring the whole world of choice. You know, many of us come to meditation <coughs> because we realize we make choices in our lives that end in suffering. We realize we make choices in our lives that lead to pain, that lead to struggle, choices that are born of, of ignorance or delusion. And so we come to meditation and we discover actually there is another way of making choices. That actually we can make choices on the basis of understanding, on the basis of love, on the basis of, of wisdom. We learn that we don't always have to follow pathways of struggle. You know, think of a single hour here, how many choices you are offered. You know, how many choices you're offered with a single thought? You know, you, you, can, you can, you know, totally dwell on that thought, engage in it, struggle with it, manufacture with it, construct a whole reality out of it. You know, you also have the choice to let go. But before you sat, you may never realize you might have this choice. You know, think of a single judgment that arises here. You know, in a, sing in a single moment. Well, all the things you could do with that judgment. You could start a war with that judgment. With one judgment, you could begin a war. You could also perhaps have the choice of forgiveness, of generosity of spirit. So I think in meditation, actually, we begin to learn the pathways of wise choice based upon experience, based upon understanding. I think we, we begin to see that we don't always have to follow those most familiar pathways of reaction, of control, of anger. But we have the choice perhaps to reach for greatness of heart, for greatness of possibility. I also feel in this practice actually we come to a place of choicelessness. Not the choicelessness that we sometimes find with great ignorance or great delusion. 
but the choicelessness that actually comes through great wisdom. And there comes a point in this practice where it actually becomes impossible for us to live in a way which is not which is not in accord with what we understand to be true. You know, and we actually know, as I talked about the other evening, we know what leads to suffering, we know what leads to struggle, we know what leads to contraction. We know the pathways of dwelling, we know the pathways of reaction, we know the pathways of obsession. We know the pathways of turning away from rejection, denial, suppression, negation, aversion. We've all done this. We know those pathways. There comes a point actually where our knowing is actually very intuitive and it becomes quite impossible for us to follow those pathways anymore because we're not interested in engaging the world of sorrow any longer. And I think it becomes a point in our lives when we are guided by a more choiceless wisdom where our actions and our thoughts and our ways of being present in this moment are actually arising from a very intuitive well of understanding. It becomes impossible to engage any longer in ways of being which actually harm ourselves or harm our world. There's an interesting balance we learn here in meditation, a kind of a paradox. In a way we are learning the art of letting go, we are equally learning the art of very deep responsiveness and responsibility of care. Now, the, the whole area of personal responsibility, of deep responsiveness, of living in a sacred and ethical a noble way is actually partly emphasized in the teaching of the Buddha. We are asked to dedicate our practice to the care and the welfare of all living beings. We are asked in our practice to dedicate all that we do to bring about the end of suffering. We are taught in this practice to be a conscious participant in the creation of each moment and the creation of our world to end suffering. Mindfulness teaching is all about understanding that nothing is irrelevant, that every word, every gesture, every thought, every feeling makes a ripple upon the world and attracts a response, and that we all hold within ourselves the capacity to communicate and to embody wisdom, compassion, and love. We equally hold within ourselves the capacity to communicate and to embody anger, destructiveness and separation. The whole of meditation is in the service of wakefulness. The whole of meditation is in the service of compassion, in the service of being present, in the service of living wisely. We are asked to live in our lives in a way that manifests the most free, the most wise way of being. Now this willingness to let go, it's very important, important to understand that letting go is not a sacrifice of discriminating wisdom, that we are asked to let go of delusion and anger. We are asked to let go of judgments and holding, of harboring of ill will, because all of this holding is actually the vehicle of ignorance, the vehicles of delusion. 
We are asked to hold on to nothing, to cling nowhere, to abide in no thing, to see the emptiness of self and to see the transparency of division. We are asked to see the transparency of the separation between self and other, between inner and outer, between us and them. Sometimes we feel suspicious of this letting go and we feel suspicious of this emptiness. We may even think, what will motivate us to heal? What will inspire us to live wisely? What will move us to care about anything at all if we let go of everything? I think it is important to understand the way in which our lives can be inspired totally by wisdom, by compassion, by, li- by listening. Sometimes we may think, well, if all things are empty, then really nothing's worthy of our care or attention or everything's irrelevant. A wise way of seeing is to see that emptiness reveals to us, actually, that all things in the world may be empty of self, and yet all things in the world, including ourselves, are their own very unique expression of suchness, of truth. And in that, worthy of our wholehearted care, our wholehearted way of honoring, of caring, of respecting. Learning to manifest perfect wisdom, learning to manifest deep compassion, this is not an easy path to follow, but in a way there is no other path to follow. What else will we do with our lives? What else will we do with our moments if we are not learning these lessons? Yet they are gentle lessons. I think it is very important to understand that for all of us there are many moments when when we stumble. There are moments when there is anger. There are moments when there is judgment. What is a response of compassion to these moments? harbor ill will, to resent ourselves, to reject ourselves, or to follow through, to understand and connect again with that commitment we have to listening well and to being present. And in renewing that commitment, we are renewing our connection with understanding what it means to follow and to travel the path of the heart, the path of compassion. May all beings live with receptivity. May all beings listen wholeheartedly. May all beings live with wakefulness. If we have just a couple of moments, quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.